Hello and welcome to the October episode of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities Asia Pacific. In today's episode, we're taking a closer look at a country that's weathered its fair share of economic challenges. This includes a lackluster economy, the popping of a real estate bubble, price deflation, and an aging population. So that sounds a lot like the recent headlines you've been hearing in China, right? But the country Catherine's actually talking about is Japan. China may be facing the same challenges today, and you'll hear the word Japanification keep popping up. But when you really look at the issues, Japan's been through a lot of it before: the economic trials, tribulations, and even moments of triumph. So, what learnings can we take away from Japan's experiences today? Is there a policy playbook there for how to respond to similar economic pressures for China, or indeed any other country confronting these challenges? That's right, Catherine, and we'll be joined by two of Fidelity's investment leads from both Japan and China to talk us through the lessons learned from Japan's economic journey and what's going on today in China. So, for our first guest today, I'd like to introduce Miyuki Kashima. Kashima-san is head of investments in Japan, based in Tokyo. She's got over three decades of experience as an investment professional in Japan. Hi, Kashima-san. Welcome. Hi, Marty. It's great to be here today. So it was more than ten years ago now, but if we cast our minds back to Japan's lost decade or lost decade and a half, what actually happened there? And and would you say that things are finally turning around? Japanification—that's a very long word. And you mentioned decade and a half, twenty years. Some people even say thirty years—the lost thirty years. I think just to put numbers on what happened in Japan. Japan's property prices and stock market fell seventy to eighty percent. That is a traumatic fall, and this happened over twenty years. And since the last ten years, we've seen a little bit of a turnaround, and quietly has、uh, resumed back to a growth phase. But twenty years is a very long time, and I'm sure when you're looking at China, this is a big question: Is China going to go through the type of decline that Japan did? Or will the decline be much more milder? And one of the big debates that we have about China is disinflationary pressures that are starting to appear. And I know Japan has had struggles with that same dynamic. Some even might call it deflation in Japan over that period of time. I guess what what are the lessons learned from that, and and what kind of drag was it on the overall Japanese economy? Yes, I think everyone understands the word deflation. But I wonder if people really understand what happens. I call it a silent killer, because although deflation is hugely destructive to the economy, in the beginning most people like it because prices go down and consumers often talked about the great bargain that they had. But it's a silent killer because no one complains, but it has a huge drag on the economy and is very difficult to turn around once you go into deflation. Kishimasan, what's been the impact on monetary policy in Japan because of the deflationary dynamic? I think ten years ago, when Abenomics,、uh, led by Mr. Abe, first started, monetary policy itself was probably not enough. We had loose monetary policy for twenty years, but that itself wasn't enough to turn the economy around. It was a combination of monetary policy and fiscal policy, and I think the willingness of the nation. To accept that prices are going to go higher, which is not always an easy 
policy to take. Now, it took 20 years. So if policy in China can be implemented at a much earlier stage, I think that'll ensure that China doesn't go through the two decades of problems that we had. Kashima-san, it feels like the authorities and the policymakers in China have definitely begun to really focus on domestic demand. But even when we speak to a lot of the consumer companies in China, they talk about the, if we look at the pricing curve, the low-end price is doing well, almost a rebound beginning in, in luxury ends. It's a mixed sort of pricing curve that's still murky and struggling. So again, if we look at Japan, do you think that consumers have changed their mindset from a sort of deflationary way of thinking to now kind of good inflation? I think the word deflation always has a negative connotation. So very few people talk about good inflation, at least not in the press. But I think for corporate Japan as a whole, a bit of inflation is probably the best thing that can happen. Because during deflation, it was very difficult to try to convince businesses to invest, to spend more, or even to consumers to spend more. Because you could always buy whatever you wanted to buy a little bit cheaper in a year's time. Besides, when sales and profits are falling, it's not very settling to invest more in your business when you think prices are going to fall further. So all of the negative spiral that we experienced for 20 years, now that's starting to turn the other way. So every government has a very difficult job in trying not to go into deflation, but to keep inflation at a modest pace so you do not get too much unhappiness, disgruntlement from the nation overall. So Kashima-san, maybe let's race forward to today. And before we break for our insert, I want to ask you a question on yield curve control, which is, you know, the only thing everybody's talking about when it comes to Japan. And, you know, you mentioned Abenomics and, and we sort of link that to what the Bank of Japan is doing today. Do you think yield curve control is having the impact that the government wants it to have? And how does it link to some of the deflationary dynamic that you've just talked about? I think the policy Japan has had in place was extremely effective over the last 10 years in turning the economy around and trying to maintain that momentum because the big lesson the government, I'm sure, has learned post the bubble is that if you try to kill the bubble too much or to do it too quickly or too dramatically, it's very difficult to reverse once if Japan goes into deflation again. So I think it was a very sensible strategy up to now. But all the signs are showing that we're no longer in deflation. The economy is starting to improve. In fact, nominal GDP is way above where we were at the peak of the bubble. So there's no reason for the government to continue this. So the big question is timing rather than whether they're going to do it or not. I'm not going to try to guess on the timing, but I think over the next year, you can guess that the direction or at least the thought of the BHOJ would be when to let that go. So let's pick up on that deflationary to inflationary topic. And Catherine, I'd like to bring it back to the consumer sector, which you mentioned before. And we really want to think about whether that knowledge translates to the marketplace today. I had a chance to catch up with one of our Tokyo-based analysts and portfolio managers, Ying Lu. So Ying, I've got a Yakult drink sitting right in front of me right now. I haven't had one of these, I think, in a very long time since my days I spent in Japan. And I do remember it as being quite sweet. 
How about while I give this a quick taste, could you just explain to everybody what Yakult actually is and, and what it's made from? Yeah, sure. Uh, Yakult is a probiotic milk beverage fermented with the live bacteria strain, which is founded by Dr. Shirota, the founder of the company. Uh, Yakult is recommended to drink once or twice a day to help you digest. And it is quite sweet now that I've just tried it. It's very popular in Japan, but I'm wondering how widely is Yakult consumed outside of Japan? The product was launched in 1935 in Japan. It sells 7 million bottles a day in Japan, but it also sells 29 million bottles daily across the world. Wow, 29 million bottles uh, globally. That's, that's quite a bit. Is there domestic competition from Chinese upstart suppliers or, or similar products? Menu Daily Company has launched uh, similar um, products in China, and the competition became intense recent years. But the difference between Yakult and the other similar products are the taste are different, as well as the bacteria strain inside the beverage are different. But you talked about this competition. That could lead to deflationary challenges for a company like this. What are we seeing there? Yes, I think Yakult has experienced three decades deflationary environment in Japan, but the business model is different. Uh, Yagru has a vertical integrated business model. Uh, it built everything by itself. It built the sticky core user base in Japan who drinks the products every day and they deliver the products to their home every day. On top of that, it also expanded a new user base across Asian markets. And the, the company continued to invent the new products to convince the consumers to switch from the low margin products to the new budget products. That's how Yakult cope the deflationary environment in Japan. Oh, that's very interesting. So it sounds like margins have been relatively stable then, even though there's a deflationary environment? Even during past three decades deflationary environment, the margin is, was relatively stable in Japan, and the margin has improved across the regions because they are expanding volume in different Asian markets. I guess other lessons that you know, companies in China might learn from companies like Yakult. I think the lesson Chinese company can learn from Yakult is keep the cost advantage, continuous improve their technology to make your products more uh, value for money, and in the meantime to expand the overseas markets outside of China. It sounds like there's a loyal client base, and you even talked about price stability, even price increases. How do consumers respond to that, and is there anything the company's done to follow up on that? Yes, sure. Yagur raised price by 10% this year after 10 years. The volume was holding well. As Yagur follow up with the promotion, and uh, they continue to encourage the consumer to drink the products every day. In China, Yagur also raised price by 10% this year after 10 years. But unfortunately, the volume declined due to the intense competition in China as well as the weak consumption sentiment. Wow, some, some really interesting comparisons and some good lessons to be learned in different geographies and countries, isn't there? Well, Ying, thank you so much for your insights and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for your time, Madi. So, Madi, when you were speaking to Ying, did you actually finish your Yakult? Well, Catherine, it has been a while since I've had a Yakult, and uh, I have to say, it was a little bit more sugary than I remembered. So, uh, no, I drank about half of it. 
In fact, Marty, it's a it's an iconic brand. I remember it growing up, and it almost reminds me of Vegemite. Very unique taste. In fact, I looked up when Vegemite was established. It was the decade earlier. So very long-standing, very successful brands. Yeah, I see the similarity. Totally. <laughs> now, Kashima-san, you were telling me earlier about a famous ice lolly in Japan that's also responded to inflationary pressures. Well, this was a few years back, but a company which makes popsicles called Garigarikun raised price by about 10 cents, so 10 yen. And some people have seen a YouTube video where the whole company lines up in front of the camera and says, we are very sorry. We must raise price by 10 yen. And this must be something that only happens in Japan. I think in most countries, if your input costs go up, and you invest in the business. And if you have to raise prices to maintain your profitability, you do that. The whole company does not have to come in front of the camera to apologize. But that was a few years back. That's not happening now. So I think this is really good positive indication that Japan is finally coming out of deflation. It's an interesting story, Kishima-san. I mean, yeah, you would not see that dynamic in, in the UK in particular, where we've seen prices for everything go up quite dramatically. So we'll move on, and I'd like to introduce our next guest, Eric Nye. Eric is our Shanghai-based co-head of investments in China. Hi, Eric. Welcome. Hi, Marty. Nice to be here. Eric, a bad month of data doesn't make a trend, but you know we've started to see some disinflationary pressure building in China. What do you make of that? We do see some of the uh, data shows that the uh, CPI is uh, going towards zero in that region. For example, like the data we see that by August, the CPI is around like 0.1% year over year, and the month over month is like, uh, if I don't, I remember correctly, it's around like a 0.3, so it's around zero, that range. It's, um, it's a, I would say it's a kind of a dangerous signal because just as Kashima-san mentioned about the uh, silent killer, <laughs> that's a really intimating word, I would say. Here in China, in the investment area, people worried about prolonged balance sheet recession that caused to subdued uh, consumption demand and then causing the deflationary pressure. But I would say we do need to take a more closer look at this deflationary pressure right now uh, because I would say it's a, a combination of multiple effects. The country is coming out of the uh, COVID recently, uh, so it's a scarring effect is still here and is at a, a cyclical bottom of economic cyclical bottom and combined with a geopolitical uncertainty. So it's important to see that the policy, the tone of the policy is changing, becoming more uh, supportive. And uh, uh, most people in China still you know, strongly wish to live a better life and are willing to work hard uh, for it. It's just like the confidence towards the future in terms of uh, enterprises and the uh, people are um, you know, still not that strong enough. So there's a lot of things we need to observe just to see and need to check with the data. So the data points, the resumption of confidence when it comes to the consumer uh, policy remaining on track, is it therefore just a game of patience and investors are just being very impatient when it comes to all this playing out in China? I would say that's one of the reasons. I mean, think about that the COVID, the whole lockdown of the COVID period just early this year, so it's only less than a year. We can clearly still see the scarring effect. For example, like the, um, the, the Chinese tourists, there is a lot of tourists reducing the numbers and really people everywhere, basically. <laughs> but the ASP, the average spending 
per traveler is not that much, and we haven't seen the expected international travel uh, coming up. And also, maybe in the past, people are so get used to the bazookas or the helicopter monies are not that patient enough. Uh, I would say that's another factor. We we do need to take that into consideration. Maybe I'll turn to you, Kashima-san. Eric just talked about travel, and clearly, what might be on the mind of consumers in China is currency and the relative value of the renminbi versus the yen. We've seen a big drop in the yen recently. From your perspective, how concerned are Japanese policymakers about that, and how does that link to the renminbi as well? I think. Any large move in currency is not good for the economy. We're both importer and exporter, so stability is more important. And looking at where we are, of course, this is hugely beneficial to the exporters, but not necessarily to the importers. The net effect is that it's a net positive to, to Japanese companies overall, but stability is more important. I think over the long run, I think the government would be much more wary of a very strong yen rather than a weak yen. In terms of how this links to China, I think I mentioned several times that the worst thing that will happen is for China, I feel, is to go into deflation. The one problem Japan had after the bubble burst was we went through a prolonged period of yen strength, which means that import prices go down. So input prices go down quite substantially. China doesn't have that problem at the moment. The currency is weaker. So it means that imported goods and raw material costs are not going down, at least in the Chinese currency point of view, which actually helps to stay out of deflation, at least from that angle. You know, when you think about it, Japan and China face similar demographic challenges as well. So Eric, from where you sit in Shanghai, how do you feel China's dealing with an aging population combined with the shrinking workforce? And, and what's been the response from both consumers as well as companies? I would say demographic challenges are really uh, the serious challenges that China's facing. Uh, so we do see that the whole country is entering into the age of rapid aging society. Actually, just yesterday we were talking about there were some data shows that if we define aged society with you know people older than 65 uh, years old or, or above, and if they came for 14% or more, then it took France 115 years to grow from aging society to aged society. It took the U.S. 69 years, and only took China 22 years from 2000 to 2022. So it's an important challenge China is facing. We do say that the government, in terms of policy response, is doing whatever they can to handle this problem. I mean, they, it may take a little bit more time to talk more about that. I would, I, but I, from my understanding, there were mostly two ways the government is um, is seriously tackling what we call the three big mountains: real estate, housing control, reform of the education system, offering more affordable, high-quality education to mass public, and reducing competition over there, and offering more affordable health care. Um, so it's all in to reduce the burden of everyday families. And also, there's a silver lining, because even though the demographic dividend is diminishing, but we do see uh, what we call it, the engineer dividend is rising. I think the China whole reform, uh, opening up and reform starts in 1978, uh, and then people can go to higher education. So right now, most of the people retiring from the workforce are the people 
uh, I mean, not that much uh, educated in, in generally. And now, every year, there are about like 11 to 12 million of new college graduates entering into the workforce, and most of them are engineering background. So that's also supporting to so the build up the foundation and the policy support for the economy to transit from traditional economy to more towards high tech and new economy. So that's also in the total effort to promote the total production factor. And I think it's also a way to dealing with demographic challenge. What about in Japan, Kashima-san? What are companies doing to adapt and, and stay competitive given the demographic shift? I think there's too much emphasis placed on demographics. After the bubble burst in Japan, our population was still rising. In fact, it was rising till 10 years ago. And I think I went over how poor the economy was. You know, our nominal GDP was actually shrinking. We had 20 years of more than just stagnation. However, our population peaked out 10 years ago, but there was a major policy change in terms of monetary policy and fiscal policy. And since then, our economy has been recovering very nicely. And I already mentioned that our nominal GDP is now past the pre-bubble period. However, our population has been declining over the past 10 years. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that there's a negative correlation to population and economic activity or growth. But I think because population only moves slowly, I think investors' image that a falling population is a complete disaster is just too large. Policy is much more important. And the great thing about China is they have had a long time to study Japan's mistakes and some of the silver lining. So we already talked about the importance of policy, but having Eric already talk about the word balance sheet recession, we didn't even know about that word when we were going through the decline. So in from that front, you know, China has the advantage of really analyzing Japan inside and out and figuring things out going forward. And so would you both argue that, in fact, the Japanese companies and the Chinese companies are not so much working together, but the Chinese companies are definitely recognizing what the Japanese companies did in terms of, of, of the shift we have seen in demographics? I'd be surprised if companies realize this. I don't think too many people realize this at all, let alone companies. But the only thing I want to emphasize is, is that policy is just much more important than the direction of demographics. So, Eric, what do you think? How does that show itself in China? Yes, I, I think the policy is very important, and it's great to see that the government, the administration, they do realize the importance of uh, policy response, and uh, and we do see that relaxation of the real estate policy, etc. But I would say investors, they are expecting more policies in, uh, in the future to show determination and, uh, and ambition to boost the confidence in the economy. And actually, in talking about the confidence in the economy and the future, I, I would say always try to tie back as we are the fundamental stock pickers. So we observe, we do observe that right now in this environment, consumers are prioritized, as uh, Kashima-san talked about in Japan's case, are prioritized towards value for money. And we do see that many companies are, are lowering prices for or offering better products to compete for market shares in this uh, environment. So in a bottom-up view, I would say good companies 
will take this opportunity to become stronger. And we do see that during and post-COVID period. So as a stock picker, I would say we will focus more on opportunities from penetration, localization, and consolidation. Also, when it comes to competition, we're seeing a lot of Chinese companies really dedicate X amount of CapEx or an increased amount of CapEx towards R&D and innovation. And this is heavily being supported by the government. So, you know, technology also offers a way to respond to an aging population and a shrinking workforce. In Japan and in China, we're seeing companies make big investments in factory automation in particular to help them stay globally competitive and increase productivity. I caught up with Reggie Pan, one of our analysts who covers the automation sector, whilst he was at the China International Industrial Fair in Shanghai. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us. So what's been some of the key takeaways from being at the Industrial Fair in Shanghai? Hi, Catherine. Thank you. Uh, although we're going through macroeconomy uncertainties, the people here in the industry, in the automation industry, is telling me that they're quite optimistic about the future, about the growth in automation demand, given there's the um, fundamental workforce changing happening in China. A lot of young people are not willing to get into the factory works. Instead, they're going into service like doing delivery or the DD drivers, so that leaving a, a, a labor shortage in the factory force. How has the automation sector played its role in Japan and, and now obviously in China? The, the Japanese automation industry grew uh, very fast in, in the past three to four decades following the demographic change in, in Japan. And uh, they were able to support the, the huge industrial base in Japan and help to drive the Japan industrial base to a mix of more high-end manufacturing instead of more low-end labor-intensive part of manufacturing. And we are seeing similar trend in China where with the uh, pressure from demographics, the huge industrial base needed uh, are needing the uh, alternative to fill in uh, for the labor shortage and automation technology are here to support the factory floors where they couldn't hire enough workers now. What about the industrial structure between Japan and, and China? Are there also comparisons to be drawn there too? In the past, China has industrial base uh, that's more skilled to the low-end or labor-intensive sectors such as textiles, such as furnitures and metal or uh, wood product processing. And today, given the demographic change and also the wage inflation in China, a lot of those labor-intensive sectors have to move out of China to Southeast Asia and other low-cost countries. With that, the mix in China is more skewed to the higher end of manufacturing sectors such as automotive, supply chain, semiconductors and electronics. So overall then, Reggie, you know, what do you see playing out over the mid to long term in terms of, of China automation? The Chinese automation players are getting more and more competitive as they had the past two decades to, to catch up on technology with the growing base of their Chinese clients who are more welcoming the Chinese suppliers. So they were lagging behind on technology uh, compared to the Japanese players, but they've been investing uh, heavily in R&D to catch up on technology. And today, with a lot of the downstream industries, such as uh, lithium battery and automotive, switching to a, a bigger mix of Chinese domestic players, 
uh, they're enjoying the opportunity to penetrate into these industries and accumulate expertise and develop their track record. And with this ongoing migration of uh, supply chain out of China, they can follow their customers to go overseas and explore uh, overseas opportunities. Reggie, thank you again for joining us. And, and like so many other companies we're speaking to in China, that sort of push towards having a domestic business as well as a business overseas, is, it's, it's clearly coming through in, in the sector that you cover. Thanks again, Reggie, and enjoy the rest of the fair. Thank you, Catherine. Catherine, there was so much in that talk that you had with Reggie about policy, about demographics, about automation. It links to, to the entire topic of the podcast. You know, what I'm always amazed about is, you know, it does come down to individual companies and sectors, doesn't it? It's so difficult to kind of bring this up to the macro level. Yeah. And even many, many years ago, Marty, I remember seeing a, a noodle company in their manufacturing base and everything was automated in terms of these instant noodles until the final part, which was basically human beings checking the product before it got sealed up and, and sent away. So, you know, this automation is, is really revving up, but it's, it's been in, something in progress for quite a while in China. And, you know, you kind of go back to Japan, which was, you know, in full automation mode in the 70s and 80s, Kishima-san, and, and, and now, you know, it's becomes clearly something that many countries in the world are focused on. Eric, maybe back to you. We're clearly seeing China look at returns on equities. And I think, you know, we'll come to Kishima-san in a minute because I know we're getting a lot more focus in Japan on capital allocation and capital returns. This links, I think, a lot to state-owned enterprises, and we've seen a rally in some of the stocks there. You know, what do you see as progress in China and, and where are the opportunities? Actually, the uh, Kishima-san made some examples about, you know, China learning from the cases or examples in Japan, talking about balance sheet recession and right now the revaluation in Japanese market. I do see that a lot of SOEs in China are adapting to the uh, modern uh, valuation system, learning from the Japanese case. Uh, for example, like the SASAC, uh, the administrative agencies for the SOEs here in China, they updated their KPI system in March this year. So, you know, to focusing on in a net profit, total net profit in the past, to be focusing more on the ROEs. So the companies need to create value for shareholders. And also they ask the SOEs to have higher R&D intensity. So that's to encourage more of the investment in the technology science, not only technology, but also scientific research and technology innovation to promote the technological transformation in the future. So those are the signs of, um, because the SOEs are the big part of the Chinese economies. And also the private company, we also do it, seeing that they are uh, investing more heavily on the uh, uh, R&Ds that will translate to the new product, new technology, and translates to higher product margin. Um, so all of those things, even those uh, consumer companies, uh, for example, like the Yakov example, so that's tied back to opportunities. As we talked about, we, we want to look at more closely at those companies that are gaining market shares by offering better products, better competition advantage in the market. So where China and Japan really are different, though, is Japan is very well favored by investors this year, China at the other end of the spectrum. And one of the reasons for this is that we're seeing better returns to shareholders, minority shareholders being rewarded by corporates. 
So this has resulted in really Japan being one of the best performing markets globally year to date. Uh, you know, Kashima-san, you've even had high-profile visits such as uh, Warren Buffett, so the whole Buffett effect. But over the longer term, do you actually see a structural shift when it comes to portfolio managers and, and global portfolio managers allocating to Japanese equities? I do. There was quite a big event earlier part of this year when the stock exchange called on listed companies to say, look, over half of listed companies in Japan are at a price book of below one. When you think about it, that's quite sad that the value of your company in the stock market is less than your book value. So they made a call to say, we would really like all the companies listed in Japan to reevaluate their cost of capital, capital allocation, return on equity, things like PER and PBR, which includes price. In other words, awareness of the stock price and shareholder return. And skeptics might say, well, we've had falls down before. And I think global investors have never been quite satisfied with some of the common metrics that they would look at in a company. And you might think, you know, why would a call from the stock exchange change everything now? I think the time is crucial. All these KPIs are all very good, and it only works, and it works well, if you are in a normal, slightly inflationary environment. All these KPIs, which might make sense normally, actually does not make sense when you're in deflation. Holding cash is the best thing to do. So the timing is right. So I think a lot of Japanese managers, they know about all these KPIs. They know about these metrics. They have subsidies overseas. They have seen global enterprises. So they understood, but it didn't make sense in Japan. So now it actually makes economic sense from a bottom-up point of view to invest more and not to have so much cash on your balance sheet. Because if you don't invest today to do the same thing, it'll be more expensive next day, maybe not next day, next year. You know, Eric, I think just listening to what Kashima-san said about, you know, the importance of, of an inflationary environment and picking up on comments you made earlier, I, I want to pick your brain because you're a multi-asset investor and you've got a lot of experience in that space. As you look across equities and fixed income and cash, as Kashima-san said, because that's always an option, you know, what do you think investors are really sort of looking for today within the China universe, given some of the, the dynamics we've just discussed? Looking forward, China market is learning from everywhere, learning from the U.S., from the Japan, from Hong Kong, from U.K., all these mature markets. Uh, right now, it's uh, negative sentiments definitely hurts, especially the retail markets. But we do see that right now, uh, the whole market structure in terms of multi-asset perspective has a barbell shape. So there's a lot of assets parked in the really low-yield, safe assets. And a lot of assets are investing, especially in China retail markets, in the high-risk, speculative, semantic equity area. And those barbell shape of asset allocation in China uh, is causing a lot of problems. And if you look at U.S., it was like that before, but now we have seen more of more of assets allocating to the mid-spectrum, so it becomes a more stable rugby shape. I would say. The catalyst for that is the introducing of long-term capital, such as the pension assets, endowment, etc. And I think what we do see 
in China, we are expecting to see similar shape or similar trend going forward as more long-term assets. Like right now, we're just uh, introducing the pension assets into China and the more encourage uh, policy, encouraging the long-term investment, etc. I'm expecting to see a change from the barbell shape to allocation to rugby shape in the future. You know, Kashima-san, let's turn it back to Japan. I, I like Eric's analogy of rugby shape. So duration has been the thing in Japan for many, many years. You know, you were basically paid to go longer and longer duration, weren't you, for, for decades. Is the environment that we're seeing now in a rising rate environment, is that changing the way Japanese investors are looking at the world? I think the outlook is constantly uh, changing. I think there's been almost too much focus on the nominal interest rate differential between Japan and the rest of the world, especially the U.S. So that has resulted in a big move in the currency more than anything else. Now, I, I said earlier that it's only a matter of time when yield curve control is probably going to end, and, and I didn't mention this one, but I think negative interest rates too. There's just no reason for Japan to keep negative interest rates at a time where there's clear inflation. Not very much, not as high as everywhere else, but there's clear signs of inflation. Now, I know many of us were, were wrong in thinking that inflation is transitory, and perhaps in this more divided world, inflation persists a, a bit longer than than we even think now. But in either case, with inflation clearly being here, and in Japan's case, it's not just the global commodity price or divided world. It's to do with labor costs. We had a major labor law change in 2019, and it's feed, without going into too much detail, it's feeding through now, and it's going to continue to feed through till 2024 and beyond. And then we have the added reason of a shrinking young age worker population which means that we'll have higher wages for quite a long time. So a final question for both of you, Eric and Kashima-san. And the question is, what is your conviction now on Japan, Eric? And Kashima-san, and what's your conviction level on China? So Eric, starting with you. Yes, I, I, I do see that uh, the, uh, the Japanese market has been undervalued for decades. And now it's a great opportunity to, to really come back to revisit the Japanese market and actually we, um, tie back to the investment needs here in China, where Japanese market is uh, attracting more attention from global investors. I am looking at the China investor base. There are the products that invest in Japan, the AUMs, uh, many of them have doubled or even tripled in this past quarter or two quarters. So we do see there's a lot of interest in Japanese market, but the coverage and research of Japanese market in China is not enough. And because most of the investors are concerning more of have a home bias towards China and also mostly looking at US market. And I do see that Japanese market has a lot of opportunities and can be a very important part of the global allocated portfolio. Kishima-san, what about you when you look at China? I think there are many similarities between Japan and China at the peak of the bubble in terms of the real estate, the peaking out of not the population, but first-time home buyers, etc. So I don't think there's going to be an easy solution, but the stock market has already not performed very well. And as soon as investors have enough confidence that there'll be enough policy to support, the type to 
avoid the type of 22-decade decline that Japan faced, I think some investors will start to invest in anticipation that this isn't going to happen. Because I, I think the topic today was the word, you know, Japanification. And I'm sure that means, you know, two decades of a stagnation and decline. And I think it's, I think as soon as we'll realize that there's enough government awareness, you know, about Japan that this isn't going to happen, that's going to be the time to, to start investing in China, I think. You know, Catherine, we've talked about a ton here and what we can learn in China from other markets, right? I think having Kashima-san here to talk about the experience of Japan, it's really good to see the Chinese government and policy kind of picking up on some of those points and, and the way they're trying to deliver on returns, capital allocation, industry focus. It all kind of comes together, doesn't it? It does. And whilst the region, as we always say, is far from homogenous, there are some dynamics in both, you know, looking at countries who have succeeded in various areas, uh, the challenges they've had. And Asian governments and companies are very, very good at, at learning from others. And I, I think that's, that's one of the, the nuances about this part of the world and why investing just remains fascinating here. And I still believe there's room enough for Japan and China in terms of allocation. Well, Catherine, that brings us to the end of this episode. And a big thank you to our guests, Miyuki Kishima and Eric Nye, and to their other contributors, Ying Lu and Reggie Pan. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or visit fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Su, Keith Chun, and Kim Juko. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.